I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. And as you turn there, I do actually notice it is physically dark in here, isn't it, this morning? Looks like we have about four lights out, the joys of not having our own space. Are you praying that God would give us a building? Join us as we pray for that. Um, and uh, because it's a little dark in here, I'm going to warn you that you might, uh, you know, get the nod a little bit this morning. You might uh, have some of that drowsiness hit you. So I'm going to give you an encouragement, and that is help me as I preach, all right? Don't let me stand up here with God's Word alone this morning. I need your amens. Amen? Or your facts, Carde. All right, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Please listen as I read, and then we're going to get into it. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have, done, have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than the sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the word of the Lord. I want to speak to you this morning on this text, and I want to tag the text, Courageous Sincerity. Courageous Sincerity. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study His Word this morning. Father, we come before You. We read these words. We recognize that they are Your inspired Word, God. I pray that You will help us today hear them understand their truth, and apply them to our lives today. I pray that you will help me this morning faithfully communicate your truth. Give me spiritual energy as I preach this text. I pray that we will, it will not fall on deaf ears. I pray that those who have ears to hear will hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Courageous sincerity. Everybody say, courageous, courageous. sincerity. I got that tag from a commentary on this text, and I think it fits very well. Courageous 
sincerity. I like that because we often don't think of those who have courage as necessarily always being sincere. And we don't always think of those who are sincere as always being bold. But what we see in this text are these two ideas of courage and sincerity brought together as the Christian. Courageous sincerity. We're coming off of a clash, an ongoing clash with the Pharisees. If you've been here the last couple weeks, that's what we've been talking about are the Pharisees. Jesus was just in a room with a Pharisee, and he had this clash, and he condemns the Pharisees. Now, he continues, thousands are gathering to the point where Luke tells us they're trampling over each other. However, Jesus addresses his warning not to the thousands, but to his disciples, And I think that tells us a little something about the thousands. The thousands are not necessarily friends of Jesus. The thousands are not necessarily there to see and hear and receive the words of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible tells us that Jesus came into this world and the world did not recognize Him. His own did not receive Him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in the same world that He lived in. People are no different today than they were 2,000 years ago. And I need you to know this. These people put Jesus to death. We can clean it up a little bit. We can add some laws to our Constitution that, that you know, keeps thing, some certain things from happening, but the, the, the heart of man has not changed in 2,000 years. Now, it's also interesting in that the Pharisees are the absolute opposite of courageous sincerity. The Pharisees, instead of being courageous, actually are driven by fear of man. They're afraid of what people think of them. They want people's applause and man's praise. Instead of being sincere, therefore the the Pharisees are nothing but frauds. And there but the grace of God go I. I understand the temptation of the Pharisees. Because the praises of people in this world is tangible. You know what I'm saying? What people think of us affects us in this world. If you have the popularity of everybody around you, there is immediate kickback in this world. I understand the temptation of the Pharisees, and I feel like I'm talking to a bunch of people who don't understand it. You don't understand what that temptation is like, you've got it together right? I'm preaching to myself this morning. Somebody's with me. (laughs) Here what we're, we're getting into is this issue of hypocrisy. Jesus points out that the issue with the Pharisees, their number one defect, if you would, is the sin of hypocrisy. Like yeast in bread, or leaven in bread, as Jesus uses the analogy. It spreads through the lump of dough, and it infects, if you would, the entire lump, doesn't it? 
Jesus says, listen, you need to be aware of something. The yeast of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, is hypocrisy. That's their issue. And if you let hypocrisy get into your life, it will infect every aspect of who you are. There is nothing from church to work to home, no aspect, public or private, that will not be infected if you let hypocrisy take root in your life. So beware. Now he goes on to show us that the issue behind hypocrisy is fear of man. What people think of us, being more concerned with man's thoughts than I am with God's thoughts. Now the irony is this, his disciples need courageous sincerity precisely because they are being accused by hypocrites. So the opposite of the hypocrite, the opposite of the Pharisee is what we need in order to stand against the Pharisees. So here he exposes hypocrisy. And actually, his first point is is that all hypocrisy one day will be exposed. Jesus' first point as he turns to his disciples and teaches with all of these people probably listening in, his first point is simply this. There are no secrets with God. There are no secrets with God. Humans love confidentiality. We love secrecy. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. A couple years ago, maybe a year or two, the Haygoods and the Hills went to Vegas together. I didn't go, so I don't know what happened. But I asked Montrell when they got back, I said, what happened in Vegas? What'd you guys do? And he said, oh, it was cool. We just like went out to eat a couple times, went, saw some movies, and did an escape room. And I thought, yep, that sounds like a vacation with Montrell. <laughs> but unlike the Haygoods in the Hills, for some people, what happens in Vegas is confidential. Not going to talk about it. Like, you know these people. They love secrets. Let's not talk about this. This is just between us. You know these people. They're two-faced, right? You know these people. They are nice to your face and talk about you behind your back. You know these people because they're always talking bad about others and you see them interacting with such kindness when they're in front of their face. What do you think they're saying about you? You think they're your friend? You know these people. They delete their browsing history because they have something to hide. You know these people. Their phone is sitting on the table and they grab it before you can grab it. They don't don't let anybody ever look at their phone for fear of what text message could come through. You know these people. They are professionals at manipulation. They are professionals 
at making excuses. They are professionals at spinning situations and stories to make things look okay in their favor. You know these people. Hypocrites. We love secrecy. We love confidentiality in our flesh. We love what man thinks of us more than what God thinks of us. That's really the root of hypocrisy, isn't it? Anybody with me this morning? Or have I already stepped on everybody's toes and you've all checked out? (laughs) Jesus goes on in verses 2 and 3, and we see here why eschatology matters. Now, three-quarters of you probably have no clue what I just said. Eschatology is the doctrine of what? Somebody? The doctrine of the end times. The doctrine of how things are going to come to a conclusion in this world. The doctrine of of what's eventually going to happen to sin and the devil and sinners and those that are redeemed and Jesus Christ in this world. That's that's eschatology. Now, a lot of people have made eschatology, eschatology just simply about gloom and doom. Just simply about trying to find some codes in the Scripture to figure out when the world ends. A lot of people have made eschatology just simply about the biblical millennial kingdom and exactly what it is, whether it's figurative or literal. The tribulation period and exactly what it is, whether it's figurative or literal, or how Jesus is going to come back, the very methods in which He's going to come back, the steps it's going to take, and they miss the bigger picture. As a result, by the way, a lot of Christians that I know say, oh, eschatology doesn't matter. I beg to differ. If you have no eschatology, you are probably missing a massive portion of the gospel. The problem is that we make eschatology about all of these little fun facts. And we miss the biggest thrust of that, and that is this. One day everything will be exposed. Christ will have the last word, not man. Jesus Christ will come back. And those who are against Him, hypocrites, frauds, will be exposed for what they are. And those who have trusted in Him, a.k.a. the faithful, will be exposed for who they are. In verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus says he's confronting the Pharisees. He says one day nothing will be covered up. Everything will be revealed. There is no action that can be hidden. In verse 3, he says not just actions, but speech. Everything that has been said in the dark, everything that has been whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on housetops. Everything will be exposed. This is, by the way, both positive and negative. It's negative in that it's for the hypocrites. It's against them. Hypocrites, don't you realize that one day your hypocrisy will be exposed? You cannot fool God. Your secrets will be revealed. But it's also positive for the faithful. Those of you who are the disciples of Jesus Christ, don't you know that one day his disciples will be vindicated? 
Don't you know that one day your faithfulness before God, your trust will be made known? There is no prayer that is prayed that doesn't have a yes and amen in God's kingdom. Every action, every secret act of love, every time you've been on your knees in repentance, hating your sin, trusting God for His grace, all of that will be put on display. And the faithful will be shown. There are no secrets with God. That is the first point in Jesus' teaching here. The question that I want us to ask ourselves and I want to ask you is, are you sincere? Are you sincere in your faith? Have you fallen on your knees in repentance and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you hate your sin? Do you strive to live in holiness before God? David Hume, an old secular philosopher, one day was walking up the street and he was heading to hear the famous George Whitfield preach. Now, Hume was not a Christian. And someone saw Hume as he's on his way to hear George Whitfield, and someone asks Hume, where are you going? He says, I'm going to go hear George Whitfield preach. And his friend says, but you don't believe a word that man says. And Hume said, that's right, I don't, but he does. Don't you realize that courageous sincerity is attractive to the skeptic? Don't you realize that courageous sincerity leaves your critic speechless? Are you sincere before God? This leads Jesus to his second point, and that is this. Fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. In Martin Luther King's final sermon, just before someone put a bullet in his body, he preached a sermon, and his last words of his sermon, he said, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He went on to say that tonight I'm not fearing any man. Family, listen. Number one, man has limited power. Number two, God has unlimited power. Let me break that down for you from the text. Man has limited power power. In verse 4, we see Jesus says, do not be afraid of him who can kill the body. What is the worst thing that a human being can do to you? Somebody. Kill you. Kill you. Well, they can torture you first and then kill you. But that's the worst. And by the way, for the believer, God will be with you every bit of the way. He will help you through that threshold from this world to the next. From having a body to being a soulless body awaiting a new body. God will help you every step of the way. The worst that man can do is kill you. But God has unlimited power. In the very next verse, verse 5, we see that God has the ability not just to kill, but to throw you into hell. Who are you going to fear? The word hell in verse 5 is the word Gehenna. 
Another picture for Gehenna is that of the lake of fire. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we see that Jesus has the authority to throw people into the lake of fire. And not just people, but the devil and all of his minions will end up, who reject God, will end up in the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 10, and then 11 through 15, what we see is that this lake of fire is absolutely 100% eternal. He says, in this lake of fire, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth day and night, forever, and he repeats it, and ever. There is no end to Gehenna. There is no end to hell. And God has given Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the authority to send people to hell. I believe in hell. And I can't talk about it lightly. I can't have a joking spirit as I talk about it. We think of hell with fear and with trembling. Because it's real. Because we know people that are there. Who do we fear in this life? Jesus is saying the Pharisees don't fear God. They just fear man because they're concerned about this life. But don't just fear man. Don't live before the face of man. Live coram Deo before the face of God because God has unlimited power. Why be so concerned then about your critic when you have acceptance before God? Why would we ever bend to please a human being when God is eternal, uh, eternally pleased with us through Jesus Christ? Fear God, not man. Now listen, he's talking to his disciples, and he's not telling his disciples that they might go to hell. There is absolutely no possibility for anybody for whom Christ has died to end up in hell. Our call is to not work our way out of hell, but to trust the Christ who took hell for us. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. What we see as he addresses his disciples is that they are to have no fear. Yes, fear God, therefore have no fear. There's nothing to fear because hell has been taken for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. In verse 4, he calls his disciples friends. How amazing is that? That the judge of this world calls you a friend. Your friend is the judge that works in your favor. He calls his disciples friends and, and he goes on and Verse 7, and he tells them, fear not. So there's a sense in which we do fear God rightly in that we respect Him and understand His power, but because the judge is our friend, we have no fear. Are you tracking with me? So verse 7 is the command, fear not. It's built on 
this argument that is a lesser to greater argument, meaning if God cares for the lesser, how much more does he care for the greater? He talks about sparrows, and he says, can't you buy like five sparrows for two pennies down at the market? The sparrows were the cheapest thing they could buy. It was likely the, the diet of the poor. And he says, there is not one sparrow that God has forgotten. Meaning if God is so concerned about the cheapest little bird at the market. You tracking? He knows you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He goes on to say, he knows how many hairs you have on your head. And if he knows how many hairs you have on your head and he cares about sparrows, how much more? How much more does he care for you? This is not a text of fear for us. It's actually a text of love, of grace, of God's care and God's concern for his people who are being falsely accused by the Pharisees. I wonder if anyone here has been forgotten by the world, but God knows your name. I wonder if there's anybody who would say that the world does not notice me. I'm often unnoticed, but God has noticed me. God knows not just my name, but He knows my past, my future, and it's a good one because He has ordered my steps. He knows not only how many hairs are on my head. He knows how many days I have left to live. And He knows how beautiful I will be when He glorifies me one day in heaven. We are not forgotten by God. I wonder if there's anybody who's persecuted by the world but knows that God accepts them. I wonder if there's anybody who has given up trying to please people because God is pleased with you, and that's enough. So I don't need acceptance from other people. I don't need to please people. God cares for us. God loves us. This is encouragement for His people as they're being persecuted. Now, question. Why then are Christians still suffering and dying? If God loves His people in this intimate way, we have to stop and, a- and ask ourselves or make a statement such as, yet, yet Christians are still suffering here. Now this is not prosperity theology that Jesus is giving, giving us. He's not saying that there will be no suffering in this world because God cares for you in this intimate fashion. What He's saying is that as you face persecution, as the world rejects you in the way that the world has rejected me, you need to know that I know you. That I'm with you. In this world, and as you leave this world and transition to the next, I'm with you. I know the way home. I've got you. You're not going to sink. Amen? So Jesus comes to his conclusion. 
in verse 8, God accepts those who acknowledge Him before man. This is written to the early disciples as encouragement as they stand tried before man. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. I think of John the Baptist who was recently killed here in the text. As he stood before King Herod and as he was tried and as he refused to back down from his convictions that were formed by this coming Messiah. Jesus is saying, you embrace me before man. You need to know I'm embracing you before God. He goes on in verse 9 to say, second part of his conclusion, God rejects those who deny Christ before man. But the one, he says in verse 9, who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. And everybody who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me briefly unpack that for you here. Jesus is saying, first, if you deny me before man, meaning if you cave, if you prove to be a hypocrite when fear of man is striking you, then I don't know you. You're not mine. Meaning, Christ has got to be more important to you than your popularity, than your acceptance by others, than your fame, than what people think of you. He's got to be more, he has, you have to treasure Christ more than anything in this world. And he goes on to say, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. What is this? This is, of course, called the unforgivable sin. Theologians have debated it. What is the unforgivable sin? Before we get to that, let me unpack the forgiveness that we see. Jesus says, if you speak against me, you'll be forgiven. Now, let's just not brush over that, getting our way to the unforgivable sin. What is Jesus saying there? If you speak against me in verse 10, you will be forgiven. This is massive. I mean, I think of like a mob boss. The mobster. He has his cousin, who is his, 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 the closest person to him. His cousin speaks against him one time. And what happens? Well, Jimmy ain't around anymore. I ain't saying I killed him, but Jimmy ain't around anymore. Jesus, the king of the universe, listen, the king of the universe had one of his own. His name is Peter. Deny him at his most critical, crucial hour. As he has his his bleeding skin hanging from his body. Going to the cross three times in front of him, Peter denies Christ and speaks against him. Listen, there is no unforgivable sin for those who are in Christ. Peter 
Fast forward, Jesus risen from the dead. Peter sees Jesus. He is, has so much regret. And Jesus is so kind and quickly forgives and restores table fellowship with Peter. We are not saved because we've never had a momentary lapse of faith. We are not saved because we have a long list of good things we've done. We are not saved because we've never spoken against Jesus Christ. We are not saved because we never have sins of hypocrisy or Pharisaism within us. We're saved because of His grace, His forgiveness. So what then does He mean by blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I, I think it's simple. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, as Stephen is being accused, all right, track with me here, same themes going on, He's being accused by hypocrites. Stephen, right before he dies, in verse 51 of chapter 7, in the book of Acts, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What is the unforgivable sin. It's, it's, it's simply resisting what the Holy Spirit is saying about Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is declaring that Jesus Christ is the only hope for forgiveness of sins, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and we resist that, and we call that demonic. We call that weird. We call that just religion. We resist it. That is unforgivable because forgiveness is only found in what the Holy Spirit is showing you, and that is in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And so then finally, Jesus says in verses 11 and 12, summing, bringing, bringing it all together, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should say, how you should defend yourself, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Oh, God's grace is there for His disciples, even as they are being accused by sinful man. Even as they are being tried, God is there to help His people. Now, we've got to remember the context. Uh, let me hit this really quick, and I'll be done. We've got to hit remember the context for Acts. Or for Luke, rather. Most scholars believe that Luke and Acts were written as a pair and given to some sort of court authority, some official, while the Apostle Paul was on trial. Paul is being tried. He's locked up. And Luke writes down these accounts of Jesus' life and the early church as somewhat of a defense. The reason I say that is this. So often, we think of the Bible written in a similar way that people write books today. Meaning, you get like some scholar, some knowledgeable person, or some researcher or historian, and they sit down and, and they write a book in their leisure to be sold. The Bible wasn't written in leisure. The Bible wasn't even written in order that it might become a bestseller, though it is. The Bible was written to address immensely 
pastoral and practical concerns. This was written by a hand potentially shaken as he realizes that his friend Paul is likely soon going to lose his life. I wonder then how encouraged Paul was, how strengthened Paul was as he received the first copy of this and as he read it. As Paul's sitting in his prison cell and he reads this theme, God will one day expose everything and make it all right. As Paul reads, fear God, not man. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear, though, fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. As Paul is being tried before a sword, likely knowing that he is going to soon die as his life is threatened, I wonder how encouraged he is to hear, God knows how many hairs are on your head, Paul. Or in verse 11 and 12, as you speak, as you're tried, I know you feel weak, I know you don't feel like you're a good speaker, but as these people who have the power on earth to kill you, as they try you, just trust the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. God's grace evidenced in the midst of persecution. If I could summarize this text in this way, I want to summarize it like this. Why be intimidated by people when the worst they can do is kill you? Why be intimidated by people when the worst they can do is kill you? And let me go on. God knows you. God knows how to raise you. And God knows how to get you home. Years ago, I went on a hike with my daughter, Jaden. Jaden was probably six, five, six, seven at the time. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> went on a hike. We were at Skycroft, which is where we're about to take the middle schoolers this afternoon, so pray for us. We were at Skycroft, and Jaden and I went on a hike into the woods. And, and I'm trying to get lost, because when you get lost in the woods, it just makes it more exciting to try to find your way home. You guys know what I'm talking about? Nope. Look, we're not, we're not like in the Rockies. We were in Western Maryland, all right? <laughs> um, so I'm out there about a mile, and, uh, and then I'm sufficiently lost. Jaden doesn't know I was trying to get lost. She thought we were on a trail. So then I say, we saw a deer, and I was like, okay, I'm, I've, I've seen my deer, I can go back now. And I say to Jaden, I say, all right, let's, let's go home. Let's try to figure our way back. And all of a sudden, she looks at me, and she says, do you know where we are? She talked the same way at six as she does now at 14. And I said, no, we're lost. I said it with a smile on my face, like she was going to, oh, cool. <laughs> All of a sudden, her demeanor changes from enjoyment to fear. She busts out in tears. Do you understand that a child is content 
as long as her daddy knows where he is and where she is? Do you understand that a child is content as long as their father knows how to get home? It doesn't matter if she doesn't know the way. If, if she was alo alone and lost on her own, it would be an entirely different story. But if she's with a father who knows where she is, who she is, and how she's going to get home, she is perfectly content to enjoy every step of the journey. Do you understand that you have a Father in heaven that is not lost and cannot be lost and isn't trying to get lost? Do you understand that you are loved? You are adopted into this family through the blood of Christ. And you have a Father who knows you. He knows how to raise you from the dead. And He knows how to get you home. Oh, and so therefore, we have joy as we live our lives before the face of God. Don't you see how this isn't intimidating? This isn't meant to drive us into fear. Living quorum Deo before the face of God would be absolutely horrifying for the hypocrite, for the Pharisee. But for his son, for his daughter, it is absolute joy to live in front of him, to know that he sees everything and that he won't ever let you go. Yes, the storms of life will continue to rage. They were raging in Jesus' time. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was killed already by this time. His disciples are going to die because of their faith in him. Jesus Christ is going to be the model of courageous sincerity as He Himself is killed by this world and put on the cross. And if you will allow me, let me talk a little bit about the cross. Because we can talk about other martyrs. We can talk about others who have died. But if we don't understand why Jesus died, we don't understand how they could die with such courageous sincerity. Jesus Christ lived a life before God, the Father, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, made flesh, never stained by sin. This Jesus Christ was accused by man, yet He had done nothing wrong. He was sentenced by man, yet He was absolutely innocent. Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of an innocent person who is wrongly handled. And he is the perfect picture of courage and boldness and sincerity as he willingly goes to the cross to die for us. Why does he die? Why does he die for us? Why do we need it? How can we stand before God as the, the righteous ones? It's because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that was put on Him brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. Don't you understand that the judge is your Savior? 
Don't you understand that the Savior is your friend? And if the Savior is your friend and the judge is the Savior, then that means the judge is your friend. And your friend is the judge. And so we can forever live happily before the face of God, knowing that He loves us in Christ. He's died for us in Christ. Oh, but I imagine for about three days His disciples had a whole lot of doubt. They wondered if it was all over. Will evil forever triumph? Will right never win? Will wrong prevail? And three days later, they went to the tomb. And the tomb was empty that early morning. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Listen, the same world will reject His followers. Has rejected His followers for 2,000 years. But you can torture me. And you can, you can kill me. But the joke is on you. Because God will raise me from the dead. I have this great and living hope who's in the world today. Jesus Christ, my Lord. We can ask John the Baptist, would you take it back? Would you be less bold in front of King Herod, knowing that King Herod took off your head? Absolutely not. Oh, death, where is your victory? We could ask Peter, who was so tortured in the way that he died for Jesus Christ. Would you take it back and live a long life? Absolutely not. Why? Oh, death, where is your sting? We could ask the Apostle Paul, for whom was the original audience of this. As you're being tried by Rome, in retrospect, would it be better to deny Christ and live a long life on this earth? Absolutely not, says Paul. Why? Because death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death, I'll tell you, is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is He your judge? Yes, He is. Is He your Savior? Is He your friend? We don't stand before Him based on our own deeds. We stand before Him based on His deeds. He will have the last word, not man. And the last word for us and the first word for all of eternity will be well done, my good and faithful servant. He won the victory. And so then we can stand as a victor. I am a victor. You are a victor. Because Christ has won. Amen? Father, we thank You for Your Word. Written 2,000 years ago in this case, for a very specific time, a specific reason, yet Your Word is still as powerful and living today as it ever was. In the same way that Paul would have been encouraged to be bold, to be courageous,
before men. I pray that we would be bold before our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors, and that we would love Jesus Christ in private and in public. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.